Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Got a few things of housekeeping here before we kick off this really good show with Matt Wilkes. It's just packed with super valuable information. Firstly, I wanted to apologize for the irregularity of the shows coming out. As many of you know, I've been on a pretty major search and rescue effort mission to find our friend Kiwi, who I had on the show back in July, I guess early July. He was down with us in Texas flying, and then shortly after that, I was up in Nevada with him flying, and then the next weekend, he vanished. Uh, literally right now into thin air. It's been as of record when I'm recording this, and hopefully by the time this show goes live, we will have new information, but this is day, let's see, 12 that he's been missing, and um, I will do a full show on that uh, and what we've learned and the just incredible effort of the community that came together from literally all over the world in this effort to find Kiwi and uh, all that we learned and some of the mistakes we made. We haven't made many, but of course there always are some. And But it was just a monumental effort uh, by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people both financially and uh, online and the teams on the ground. So we learned a lot about devices and inReach and communications and we learned a lot about a lot of things. And uh, some of this was, you know, we, we learned a bunch about major search and rescue effort when Guy Anderson disappeared here in Sun Valley in the 2012 PwC. And unfortunately, I've been involved in a number of these. So we keep learning and I'll do an article on that for cross country and we'll also do just a show dedicated to that but because of those efforts uh, I, it's been difficult to keep up with putting a show out every two weeks and my wonderful editor Miles Connolly has been wrapped up in big projects with his work with National Geographic and the BBC and stuff so we have had a hard time getting these out on time and I apologize for that we will get back to those and Anything we've, if we've missed any, we, we did a, we put out last week uh, a replay of a of a past show with Pal Tackets. That was the most popular show we've put out to date. So we kind of re-engineered that and put it out just because I, I hadn't been able to interview anybody. So now, yesterday I interviewed three people. Today's show is going to be the first of those. So we are well caught back up and we'll get back on our regular schedule of getting these out every other Wednesday uh, new swag. Got some fantastic recaps. They they have really redesigned their their trucker hats. Uh, Annika and the the hats that we've got right now are just gorgeous. So uh, check them out if you go to our store on cloudbasedmayhem.com. And I've also got a whole new box of shirts from Patagonia that just came in. Yeah, got some new models. The new Fitzroy. These are all 100% organic, fair trade low water use they're terrific shirts people really digging them and we've got some new tank tops for the ladies and i invite you to go check those out also some up high endurance i think they're called so these are kind of cool new models and they're new stuff and in great colors so check those out it's a wonderful way to support the show i also want to just mention that if you have interacted with us in any way in the last six years, seven years that we've been doing this, you should have an account to access all the bonus material, whether you contribute to the show or not. If you contribute, for sure you do. But if you've 
you know, bought any swag or sent us an email. All those have to be done manually, and certainly I miss some of those. And, and if you can't afford to support the show, I totally get it. You don't even need to explain yourself. Just send me an email and say, hey, I want to access the bonus content, and I will set you up with a lifetime account, and hopefully someday you will be able to support us. And on that note, I really appreciate that, you know, I thought that when COVID hit, we were going to be in real trouble. Uh, certainly my business is still totally on hold and in serious trouble, which is my main source of income. And that just evaporated in March. And I thought that the same thing would happen with the podcast. And it's been the opposite of that. People have been really generous and our contributions are at an all-time high and I just really appreciate it and they just kind of keep trickling in and keep going up and that makes me feel really good about what we're doing here and I just appreciate that you appreciate what we're doing so thank you very much for that as always all we ask for is a buck a show it's kind of like a magazine subscription so if you're getting something out of it uh, we appreciate you helping us out thank you this show with Matt Wilkes Matt was on the show about three years ago, he was he took my what we were calling the master's class, and it was kind of a bivy-oriented class, a single-day class up at the lakes with at Jockey's place. And he gave me a ride back to Edinburgh, where I was flying out the next day, and I stayed with him. And he's a an ER doc and a critical care doc who has more recently also gotten into instructing. He worked for the boys, Mike and Stu Belbus, very good friends of mine, and kind of one of the I cut my teeth with them back in the day. At, at Verbier Summits, and so he's been instructing with them. And no doubt you have seen some of his articles recently in Cross Country. He, when the last time I had him on the show, we talked mostly about trauma and what should be in your first aid kit. And you really need to go back and listen to that show if you haven't. And it's super valuable information, and we kind of update it in this show. But in Back then, he was working on a big hypoxia project with Tom Dodorlado and others that were doing some high-altitude flying in Pakistan. And so he, he did a big study on hypoxia and cold, which we get into in the show, and how it affects us and how we need to mitigate it and how insidious cold can be and how it affects and how hypoxia and cold affect our cognition. And we also talk about the debacle that was actually happening during the X Alps last year. I was uh, down low in the swamp trying to get to St. Hilaire while a lot of people were top landing on Mont Blanc, and that didn't go so well. Let's talk about SIV, and he's also completed two of the biggest that I know of, certainly, but I think they just are, uh, the biggest reserve studies and uh, that have ever been done. So how people pull, how they should pull, what can fail, what can go wrong, how manufacturers uh, should potentially change things about reserves. So no doubt you've seen some of those articles. They're terrific in cross country and we'll be doing, he'll be doing more uh, studies on that, but we get real deep into reserves in this one. And also he did a big survey in conjunction with cross country and the BHPA analysis on cross-country accidents and flying accidents and acro accidents, just flying in general accidents and what the numbers truly are, uh, who they affect more, you know, the, at the early end of the spectrum versus the expert end of the spectrum. And 
We talk a lot about intermediate syndrome and pilot error and what are the main pilot errors that contribute, contribute to this proximity to terrain, high pilot workloads, and a lot of stuff. So we dig deep into what they've learned and what they still have to learn. And of course, data is, is hard to sift and, and you know, figure out and come up with real certainties, but they've done a terrific job there, he and his big team on a lot of this, and we glean a lot of fantastic information from that. So I think you'll really enjoy it. And then finally, we retap back into his first aid, the, the talk that he gave with us three years ago, and his what should be in your kit and how he's maybe honed that a little bit. So a lot here. This is a long talk, and but there's, there's tons of great information. I think you'll really enjoy it. So please enjoy this talk with Matt Wilkes. Matt, it's uh, it's a pleasure to get you back on the show. I always enjoy talking to you, and it's uh, cool to. We had a little chat there at your place in, in Edinburgh, which I stayed at a few years back. And uh, thanks for the hospitality, and thanks for coming back on the show to take us through all the stuff. Many of us have been reading your articles with a lot of interest in the last couple of years on your studies on hypoxia and reserves and accidents and risk and stuff, and. Also, since the last time we talked, you've been doing quite a bit of instructing and a bunch of SIV. You were working for the boys. Shout out to Mike and Stu out in Verbier until I, you know, I guess I understand this correctly, until COVID kind of hit and you had to go back to your main job being a doctor and in critical care. So catch us up real briefly on what you've been up to and uh, then we can dive into this master syllabus you've given me about all the things you've been doing since, since last we talked. Great stuff. Oh, thanks for having me uh, back on the show, Gavin. Um, it's a real pleasure to to be back and to catch up. Um, yeah, life has been uh, not quite how I thought it was going to go, um, but fun nonetheless. So since we last spoke, I have been doing a bit of doctoring, quite a lot of paragliding research. And last season, I was working for Verbier Summits and Verbier as a kind of baby guide, uh, learning from the kind of expert instructors there. Um, all about uh, how to take people flying, which is a really, really good experience. Uh, I've been doing a bit of tandem flying. I've been trying to work on my own flying. And the plan was to do that all again this summer, which I was really looking forward to. And then, uh, yeah, someone ate a medium rare bat and COVID became a thing. And uh, (laughs) I went back to work in the hospital full time. So I've been uh, been in intensive care, uh, working as a doctor in Edinburgh until um, about a month or two ago. And I think, I mean, you know, this is of course a free flight show, but put some, paint some color for us on, on what you're dealing with there in the UK, what that's looked like, you know, cause we're all bombarded with many different things in the media these days and trying to stay clear of politics here. But, um, what has it been like for you in the ER and what are you seeing on the ground? It's been interesting on a number of levels. I think when COVID first started, I was living out in Verbier over um, through the winter. My wife was teaching yoga there. And I, you heard about this virus that came from China and then went to Italy. And it was like everything had a half-life. We're like, okay, well, we should be able to stay till the end of the season. And then it was until next week. And then we read, oh, actually, we need to be 
heading back to the UK in about eight hours time. So we packed up the car and we drove. And going through France was very, very interesting because they had locked down quite aggressively. There was police on the streets. You need to get papers from the town hall to be able to travel. And then we crossed back into the UK and it was like nothing was going on. Everybody was still in cafes. Everyone was still kind of moving around. There was no social distancing. And this was back in March. And I think that initial complacency bit us in the ass. And so when I got back to Edinburgh and and started working in critical care again, we were a little bit behind London. So we were actually pretty organised. We had a bit of time to prepare and we were never overwhelmed. But when I talked to my colleagues in the hospitals down in London, where they were hit pretty hard, not as hard as the States or Italy, but they still had a good session. Um, They really felt the effects of us delaying things like lockdown and social distancing. For us in the hospital in Edinburgh, it was, uh, as an individual doctor, it was, I was very glad to have the opportunity to help, um, to work with my friends who were full-time in hospital side by side again and to look after people um we had to triple the capacity of our icu um the hospital was pretty much exclusively filled with covid patients at one stage um we were very lucky that we never ran out of resources or staff but there were points where we thought actually this could get pretty serious and so i I realized the lockdown's been very controversial in different parts of the world but i was pretty happy that we did it i think we averted something pretty big and pretty awful we did it late, but at least we did it. And how do you see, you know, my, my good friend here who I had on the show back, you know, when right before we went into lockdown, so when this thing was kind of just maybe a week or two after it was declared a pandemic in March, um, Terry O'Connor, who's an ER doc like yourself and has been kind of the face of, of handling the COVID here in, in our community, our little, little town in Sun Valley, what he keeps impressing on me, you know, when we go have a socially distanced dinner together or something um, is that there's still a lot, the community and the science side, the epidemiologist side don't know about it. How do you, how do you see this playing out for us as a community in the world? We're learning all the time and it's amazing. I think we're very fortunate in, in Edinburgh that we have one of the main centers of learning about COVID, they do a lot of large-scale research um, looking at population trends. And it's amazing how much work those guys have put in and how much more we know about the virus in terms of who it affects and how it presents than we did in March when really it was, it was kind of feeling our way fairly blindly. We now have some promising avenues of treatment using steroids and other things. But really the big thing that we need is a vaccine. And on my radar is the fact that we're now going to start to come into flu season and how the countries manage flu, which can present a little bit like COVID and also puts a burden on the health service and COVID at the same time in the run-up to mass vaccination, I think is going to be very tricky. And I'm slightly wary about how the next few months are going to play out. Mm, Yeah. And and you were saying before we started recording that, you know, if the the stage three trials go successfully and you know a vaccine is produced sometime early next year that you know it, it's still going to take it sounds like quite a while you know it might be 2022 before you have enough people vaccinated that we can 
you know, more easily jump on airplanes and travel around? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, one of the joys of paragliding, as you hear on your podcast all the time, is it takes us to some really interesting places and we get to know communities that often you don't see, you know, be that in Nepal or be that, you know, Vida Kalka in, in Colombia. And those guys, like the people that we know and care about over there, are definitely not going to be first in the queue because that's how these things have always worked internationally. And there's so much political clout amongst the big powers, particularly in, in the US, the UK, Russia, to ensure that their populations are vaccinated first. That I think some of the people that we care about in some of the countries that we like to go and fly, it's going to take a while before they get access to what they need. I hope to be proved wrong, but mm. historically that's how it's always been. Sure, sure. Okay, well, moving on to, I wouldn't say, you know, totally more positive subject, but, uh, you know, we've got a, a lot to get through here and it's it's good to have your your insight into that. And obviously we're still, still got a long way to go. That's what it feels like, certainly to me. But uh, let's turn the, the discussion to other things you've learned about safety and how we can be safer in what we're doing. You've been involved in some really cool studies. The last time we talked, you were ramping up on your hypoxia study, which I want to hear about. But also you've done uh, – you did a real massive study on throwing, on reserves that I want to hear about and this accident analysis you did with the BHPA. So take that however you want. Sure. Thanks, Gavin. Yeah, it's actually, it's really nice to talk about paragliding. I mean, you know, it's at times I felt a little bit silly that my kind of main research interest is keeping paragliders safe when all this kind of global pandemic stuff's going on. But it's also, it's also been a real joy to, uh, to have been able to kind of look into this stuff because it's, it's something that I'm really, really passionate about. And yeah, since we last spoke a few years ago, we've been able to do a, a number of separate studies. Um, kind of feeling our way a little bit through it so it's not if I was to go back and do it again I'd have probably done them all slightly differently and in a different order um but we've covered some ground so yeah since we last spoke we did uh we analyzed the BHPA which is the British Hang Gliding Paragliding Association's accident database so we looked in detail at about a thousand accidents we've done the largest survey of paragliding to date through Cross Country Magazine. We had responses from 1,700 pilots, and that's going to come out next month, the results of that. But Ed has very kindly said I can chat about it on the podcast. We've looked at paragliders in flight. We've done all sorts of kind of crazy instrumentation of paragliders on XC and Acro. And then we've done the reserve study work, which is the, the bit where I think we've probably had the most yield. And had I known what I know now, I'd have probably started with that. But coming at it from the background as a critical care doctor, the physiology was the bit that seemed most accessible to me. So that was kind of where I started. Cool. Well, dive into that wherever you want. Let's 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 hear more and 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 learn more. Your your article about the the reserves was 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 actually really enlightening for me. I, I thought I knew a lot about reserves, and you, you guys discovered some really valuable information. Thanks, Kev. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm going to mix in two bits together, and that's let's start with what we found from looking at the accident stuff because that leads really nicely into the reserve parachute so when um as you know in in all countries we have this kind of voluntary system of accident reporting which i think works better than people give it credit for but if you ask a question as basic as how dangerous is paragliding 
it's very hard to give a good answer because we don't really know how much flying everybody does. And it's all very well me saying, well, there were 10 accidents last year. If there are 20 accidents next year, is that because the sport's got more risky or because more people are flying? Mm. And people have made kind of efforts to, to answer this question in the past. But what they've tended to do is they've tended to look at numbers of pilots, not how much flying they do. So what people might say before is like, well, there are 5,700 members in the British Hang Gliding Paragliding Association. There were this many accidents. So our accident rates are so-and-so per 100,000 members or however you want to, however you want to do it. The problem is, is that when you start to then look into that data, you realize that because people do such different stuff in as diverse a sport as flying, it's actually quite meaningless. So if you take a place like Babadag in Turkey, Oladine is an amazing place to fly. There, they've actually got quite good numbers because there you have to buy a ticket to go up the road. And so they know how many flights people do. And they have a fatality rate there of seven per 100,000 flights, which is actually relatively high. But then you think, okay, well, what's Babadag like? Well, there's loads of tandem pilots. There's probably more mid-airs than there are in other places. And people go there to do Acre. So is what happens in Babadag representative of what happens everywhere? And I think it's probably not. Mm. And so the thing that we got into and that's coming out in cross-country next month is a good place to start, is we surveyed 1,700 pilots through Cross Country Magazine, and we said, well, what do you do? Like, how much flying do you do? How much flying did you do last year? What incidents did you have? And the nice thing about using a database like Cross Country Magazine is that you know exactly how many people there are subscribed to the database. You can kind of tell how many people got the survey. Because the problem is if you just fire it out on the internet, you don't know who's reading it and whether who comes back to you is representative. So what we found from that is that the rate of injuries in paragliding is about 20 serious injuries per 100,000 flights and about one and a half deaths per 100,000 flights. And to do that, to get that data, we had to work out how much flying people did from the XC survey. And then we had to look quite deeply into a subpopulation, which was the British Hang Gliding Paragliding Association database to find out what accidents people had and then marry the two together. So that's a very long-winded way of explaining how we got to where we got to, which is coming up with a number, albeit a rough one, of how dangerous paragliding is. And I'm actually quite delighted that we now have a number because we can now start to compare ourselves to things like skydiving and general aviation. And we can also see if the safety efforts we make actually work because we'll now know if these numbers go up and down over time, as opposed to just saying there are these many pilots and there are these many accidents. Because you did the study with the BHPA, how do the numbers, I'm not sure this, how relevant this is, but I would imagine there are areas in the world, like you said, in Turkey, that are m- more dangerous. You know, Certainly flying here in the Rockies would be more dangerous than most of the flying I've seen in the UK just because the air and the desert and the the launches, I mean, everything. It's rocky, it's nasty, it's big. Um, I, I wonder how 
does does that go into your thinking and your modeling as well? Is that is because you're using the BHPA? Is that mostly pilots that are flying in the UK, or is uh, I know British pilots fly a lot in the Alps too? That's a really good question. And what I guess I should have perhaps been more clear the the purpose of using the BHPA data was to look at those BHPA members who filled out the cross-country survey and start to compare accidents and deaths to the total flying that is done. Mm. But the interesting thing that came out of both of those analyses is the things that cause accidents are pilot error, but in particular, the decisions we make, our abilities to control the glider, and perhaps from time to time, our ability to judge things like distance. And I would argue that those are global concerns. Wherever mm. you fly, those are going to be factors. It'd be fascinating to know, too, the if, if there's much of an impact in terms of where you learn and how you're taught. Are you taught using the APPI system or something else? You know, are, are obviously the French and the Germans have the most numbers uh, and so I would think that their accidents, uh, you know, way heavier there. But I wonder if, you know, if the per capita, if the, if the, if the data shows that they're also learning better or worse. It's difficult to say from what uh, we learned as to whether there were kind of national trends in that sense. As we were saying before, per capita doesn't really work because you mm. have to know how much and what kind of flying they're all doing. Sure. I think the conclusion I came to, though, is just how vulnerable people are when they come out of any training scheme. Like, be it in the US or France or Germany, you know, Switzerland is one of the few countries, for example, where people need a minimum of 50 flights before they can get their license. In other places, that would be an unthinkably large number. Mm, But if you think about what somebody's like when they come out of training, they've learned the very basics of launching and landing. They've learned a little bit about the weather. But, and we were all in this position, they are very, very vulnerable. And so one of the things that really struck me from the work I did is the importance of continued learning. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's so yeah, let's dive into some of the some of the takeaways. Other than you know, with the, that's a that's a great one. Well, first, how do we compare to some of the other sports or high risk sports? And then yeah, let's dive into some of these takeaways. What did you guys learn? Sure thing. So I mean, in terms of like those broad numbers that I generated, it makes us about twice as risky as skydiving. Um, and about twice as risky as flying a light aircraft. Um, those are very rough numbers, and there are big confidence intervals. So there's a big spread in which those num- the true value could lie. But we're roughly twice as dangerous as those things. Mm. I don't want to get too fixated on that, though. I wanted those numbers because it's a start in terms of us growing up as a sport and comparing ourselves to these other disciplines. But as you know, your podcast really ably demonstrates, you know, the number of people you've had on there, what really matters is why these things happen. And I think the takeaways there for me were the gliders just don't break. Like we misuse them, but they don't break. Hmm. The there was about a four between three and four percent technical error rate in all the stuff that we found. 
everything else is us. Like we are the we do the crashing, not yeah. the gliders. Sure. Um, and I know that's not particularly new, um, but some of the the extra bits of light I can shed on that um, are really we have two big areas of weakness: the decisions that we make and how we control the glider, and that feeds into two things really. First of all, in terms of how we compare to other sports or other forms of aviation, those are the things that we do wrong in other forms of aviation too. So even commercial aviation, it's still the decisions we make and how we control the aircraft. It's not... Um, it's not technical. You know, it's, it's not stuff going wrong. It's not yeah. technical, but it's also, it's not being drunk. It's not being, you know, it's not being reckless necessarily. It's making bad judgments with the best of intentions. Mm. Um, the other things that I was able to kind of pull out of that though is... Um, there are times of high pilot workload and i think we know this intuitively but i think it's something that we really need to think about when we train so in particular takeoff flying in dense traffic and being close to terrain which we are almost all the time especially in scotland those are times when we are vulnerable the other things is that when we find ourselves in times of glider instability and um, once rotation starts to be a factor that's another time where we become vulnerable again and that was one of the reasons why we did some of the reserve work the way we did and the other thing that came out of that data is that reserve parachutes are massively underthrown. yeah and i think these were the these were the key things we pulled from that analysis and what did you discover? Why? Because I, you know, I, I know we're going to get into the reserves pretty deep here, but in my experience, I have seen hundreds of reserve deployments and I don't know that I've seen any accidents from any of them. Um, you know, maybe other than a sprained ankle, but the, but I've also seen a lot of people not throw and those almost never go well. And so what, why aren't people throwing? Just for, to kind of actually put a number on your first point, because that's something we can now do from the work I've done. I calculated that you had a roughly 50% reduction in chance of injury if you throw your reserve, even if some of those are thrown low or they tangle. I mean, it could not be clearer. You just got to throw it. God, I'm surprised terms, it's even that low. I, I would have put the number at almost 100. <laughs> yeah. But I think the thing was, is I included when they, you know, I included ones where they chucked it at 20 feet. Right. Sure. Or where it was tangled. It's just that global, if it comes out of the bag, no matter where you are, it is very likely going to help you. Mm. Um, and uh, that's a, I think that's a message that needs to be drilled home. So, so why don't we, you, you know, the, the key question that you asked, I guess let's look at the whole process and let's work backwards. So throwing a reserve at its most basic is grabbing the handle and getting it out of the harness, but then going back one step, it's realizing that you need to stop trying to fix your wing and switching your mental program into now it's time to throw mode. I think that's where 
the problem lies. I think that's why people don't do it. And whether that's because they lose altitude awareness or whether that's because they simply lose the the ability to access that mental program sure. of how to do it under stress, I think is still something that's not proven, but I think it's a mixture of both. And the reason why I think it's that is if you look at um, skydiving as an example, before um, automatic activation devices came in, these things like cypresses that chuck your reserve parachute in skydiving if you're traveling a certain speed below a certain height, there were examples of experienced skydivers not throwing their reserve parachutes. They'd just freeze. They'd have a main malfunction and they'd hit the ground. It was called a no-pull fatality. And when you then look at something like helicopter underwater escape training, which is something that you have to do if you want to work on the oil rigs around the world, where you basically get put in a helicopter, flipped upside down, dunked in water, and you have to get out. Some people, if they've been told what they need to do, just can't access that bit of their memory. And I think that we reserves form such a small part of our lives as paragliders. You know, they're very rarely thrown. Students come out of school not really knowing much about them. And yet, actually, there's this life-saving tool that we just get told about. But if you look at this other stuff, you look at what happened in skydiving, you look at what happened in um, the oil rig or the oil industry, like you need to live and breathe the fact that you have a reserve. Yeah. You need to know how it works. You need to chuck it in practice. Even if you know you don't have the opportunity to do that, you need to hang up your harness, attach the reserve handle to a cushion instead of a reserve parachute and chuck it and chuck it and chuck it. Like know the force you need to pull, the direction you need to pull, how hard you need to pull it. I'd love it if students, when they were in school, when they finished their training, they were hung up in a hang point in their harness and they went through those drills too. So they didn't become afraid of what was involved. Mm. It's it's that level of familiarity and understanding. We need an order of magnitude more if we're to actually make use of what we have. It has to become like our pre-flight checks, doesn't it? I mean, I, I love what... Theo said, and like like you said, I mean, none of this was part of my initial training. No, you have a reserve. That was kind of it, you know, or here's how you throw it, you know. <laughs> and, you know, what Theo says with the acro guys, because they do it so much and then it's just, it's just part of their repertoire is, you know, you first it's a mindset. First, you know, before every single flight, you have to, I am willing to, this might be the day where I have to throw my reserve. I'm going to throw my reserve if, and then the second part is just having it totally, I mean, that's part of your, like your pre-flight checks. You know, every time when I get off the ground, that's the first thing I do is, well, not right off the ground, but once I'm safe is, you know, reach down and practice it. Because the other thing too, is these days we're often, many of us are flying with different gear. You know, I've got my comp gear. I've got my X Alps gear. I've got my acro gear. You know, the first time, my funny story about throwing my reserve when it wasn't attached to me, it, you know, I had two reserves in that harness, but I wasn't used to flying that harness. I didn't think about that until I saw my first one flying away and started laughing at myself. Went, wow, that's interesting, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, we can't rely on luck, but it's, so it's the, it's the mindset. It's having it down. You know, Theo talks about like every single time he has to go down his leg and, and right, it's right there, down his leg and right there, down his leg, right there. It's, you know, it's because every harness is a little bit different. You have to, switch your mindset. Okay. You know, my X ops gear, I've got one in my comp gear. I've got two. That's a good thing to be practicing. Um, 
And then, yeah, and then that situational awareness is really hard for people to just, you can't tell somebody that on the ground at an instruction thing and go, remember to look at the ground. You know, it, it takes SIV practice. It takes, I mean, it's like you said, it's training. It's training. I think you, you, there are so many good points in what you just said, Gavin. The two that I think are really worth picking up on are what Theo said about really visualizing the circumstances in which you might need to throw it. And the other is standardization, you know, swapping gear. To start with the, the first point, um, I learned to skydive a couple of years ago and it was um, it was a great thing to do. And I'm wary of comparing skydiving and paragliding too much because they are very different things. Skydiving is quite, in the best sense, formulaic. You're jumping in the same way the same aircraft with the same gear usually with the same people and in the same air mass and you spend most of your time away from the ground but one of the things that they do really well and when i learned was they there are a limited number of malfunctions in skydiving and there are actually a limited number of malfunctions in paragliding if you break them down um and when i was learning they put me in a mock harness they had me look up on the ceiling of this little booth and on the ceiling of the booth were a bunch of different glider or parachute configurations malfunctions and every morning before we went to jump they point at that one and you'd work through the actions on your harness that you're in so you were already preparing yourself to see something abnormal you were then not only working out what you would do but you were going through those physical motions and you were doing that again and again and again. And one of the things I loved the most about that drop zone, it's an amazing drop zone, was, was Skydive Space Land in Houston, was that you'd see experienced guys doing that. You know, guys with thousands of jumps who just drop in there and just work themselves through it. Mm. And I thought that was incredibly admirable. And it's exactly what you were saying, what Theo was saying. You are preparing yourself for the circumstances in which you may need to throw. Mm. Um and I think the, the, um, Rev has talked about this. I don't know if on the show, I mean, I've talked about this several times. I'm sorry, listeners, for being redundant, but I think this one's really important. The other thing is in flight, I think it really behooves us to constantly have an assessment as of right now, how much time you potentially have as of right now. I just, I do that now. I mean, if I'm flying eight or nine hours, I do that constantly throughout the whole flight. You know, am I on the deck? Am I, do I have 5,000 feet underneath my feet? You know, like how much, you know, because you can kind of, if you're going to a cascading situation, you are going to be looking up and dealing. And so you have to have a framework in your head. How often do I need to look down? How much time do I have to solve this? And, and then just making an automatic, okay, I've got five seconds. I've got 10 seconds. You know, if something happens right now, this is how much time I'm going to have. And then you just don't push that. You just, you deal, don't have it, throw. <laughs> it's as easy as that you know you have to you have to i don't know like prepare your mind for these frameworks before something happens i think that's right i think it's very hard to do it is hard to practice. do but it, but it's but it's like everything yeah. it's a habit you know if you, if you start just doing it in the air while you're constantly just you know just checking in with it's kind of like a check-in okay i've got a lot of time to deal with this i mean it also helps me kind of deal with fear you know there's not really i mean even if the air is really hairy there's not that much reason to be all that nervous if you've got a lot of ground clearance you know if you've got a ton of margin you're pretty safe, really. Like you said, the glider's not going to fail. Um, and so you've got, you've got time versus 
you're scratching out on a windy, uh, you know, ridgeline, that's a different, that's a totally different ball game. That's an instant throw. Something goes wrong, you're throwing instantly. You're not trying to recover that. Absolutely. And I think that's a great way of approaching it. To add a nuance to that, there was um, one of the coaches in the club in Scotland, he's been flying a long time, used to be a nuclear safety engineer, a guy called Dave Thompson. And he, he used to always say, just put numbers on something. So I like your idea of five seconds. And he would do it on everything. He'd do it on wind, on comfort, on everything. He's like, just start to calibrate these things. And so I really like your idea of of saying, I've got about five seconds or I've got about 10 seconds. Something like that, I think, is probably a more approachable way of doing it. Mm, mm, yeah. Just because you're going to be, you know, obviously you're going to be very busy. Your mind's going to be working on overload, trying to solve this problem. And it's, I, I, I get that... I mean, it sounds absurd, but I get that people can lose that ability for situational awareness and you just go all the way in without ever even thinking about it. And I think I think that's true. And I think people, when they're very stressed as well, they lose the ability to innovate. So one study that was quite well done, again, with the helicopter stuff was they worked out if there was a problem, how long does it take someone who's stressed to come up with a novel solution? And the answer is about 10 seconds mm. on average. And we actually saw that um, on the first reserve study we did where we sent 55 pilots down a zip line. We had um, one chap who he grabbed his reserve handle and he also grabbed his stirrup. So when he pulled the handle, it could only come out, <laughs> you know, a few inches from the harness. And he looked at it and he just went down the whole zip line just looking at it. And this is, you know, this is an experienced pilot who, when told what had happened, was like, well, of course, I just needed to let go of the stirrup or, you know, I need to pull the package right. or something. But he just looked at it and he froze. And the other behavior that you see quite often is is what's called perseveration, where people just do the same thing right. over and over right, again. Right, expecting a different uh, result. Yeah, exactly. And people can't innovate. And so that leads into two things, really. The first is that the kit has to work and it has to be as fluid as possible and the second is yeah you're absolutely right people have to prepare this has to be on their radar that they might need to chuck this is a big part i mean this whole psychological side of the sport that we play is is a, a main ingredient in the book that will soon to be out about the podcast but this this came up again and again that we have to know really clearly who we are and how we react are we a freezer are we a solver are we do we do things calmly do we panic because um, a lot of that can be trained um, but it's also just good to know it about you you know how much I and mean, we're going to get into passive safety here but uh, you know how much do we have to rely on passive safety versus getting things done do you th out of interest, Gab, like, do you think that that is contextual? Do you think somebody's a freezer in all circumstances or just some? Geez, that's a good question. I don't know. It, that, what have you learned from your studies? I mean, I, I think the – I have no data to back this up, but it does seem like, you know, more people are freezers than – the the other and like i said i think it can be trained but it's um you know you you talk about kind of like the it's it's like the flow channel thing you know when you when when people are 
in a situation that is beyond their skill level, um, they often report that they don't remember any of it. They can't, they can't process what well, I don't, it just, just happened, you know? Whereas when you talk to really experienced pilots who have some kind of major event, it's really slow. It's like everything's happening in slow motion and you're dealing with it. It's just, it's not a big deal. You've, you've done it so many times and you've been through it so many times. So I, you know, was that person at once uh, a freezer and they've solved it through training and, and skills or I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have the, I don't have enough knowledge about that. Nor do I. I mean, I think from what I've seen in the medical field, it's it's very trainable. You know, you see junior, you know, very junior anesthesiologists or ER docs who are confronted with something stressful and some will freeze, some will work things through. Lots of people do kind of stereotype behavior. They just do the same thing over and over again. It's usually trying to put a drip in somebody because it's a thing they know how to do. Mm. Um but then by the time they've been doing that job, you know, a few years, they're seasoned pros. I think the issue is, is that flying is, you know, it's the, it's the icing on many people's cake. It's very hard to get that degree of experience and familiarity with your hobby. Mm. Um, and so I suspect that people who, who still freeze when they fly, it may be that actually they're trainable and they can get beyond that freezing phase, but it's going to take a lot more hours than they're able to put in. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, when I look at myself, I, I wonder how much the other sports that I've done that, you know, before flying, you know, with kayaking and really serious stuff and kayaking waterfalls and kind of things that were really, you know, very much on the edge. I don't know if that training it helped or that kind of going through that mentally helped for flying, but I've always had a very unusual, I think, uh, would it be parasympathetic response? If I say that, is that the right way to, but my, when I get in really extreme situation situations, I, I experience fear like everybody else. So, you know, if I take some big whack or something, it's like, well, I mean, my heart rate skyrockets, but I think like most people's, but if it's a really serious situation, um, my heart rate plummets. It, it almost goes to resting heart rate and everything becomes really vivid and it's just a problem that is to be solved. It's, it's really, and I've always been like that. So I don't know that that's something that training has done. I, it, I, I kind of doubt it. I don't know. It, it's, it's really interesting, but, um, I, I would, I would posit that partaking in this sport <laughs> without some of that would be really kind of hairy uh, you know it'd be hard it's hard to deal with things if you're just freaked out yeah absolutely and so i i used to kayak um not nearly at the level you did but some some reasonably intense stuff that was way above my skill level and i just managed to terrify myself through <laughs> through you know four months going around British Columbia with people who were much better boaters than I was going, they were going down bigger and bigger stuff. And I was getting more and more scared and more and more kind of incapable. <laughs> and, and I think it can, it can work the other way. And I, I think that that actually, that experience was incredibly useful because it meant that when it came to flying, I was able to pace myself and, 
as it is, I, you know, I find flying a very relaxing experience. Mm. Um, so I think it's as, it's the experience you take in. It's the way you learn. It's probably a little bit about your personality and the other things that you've done. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating question and one that I would like to know the answer to. Mm. One thing that did come up actually, which is, was very interesting is on, on the podcast, you know, you've talked a lot about intermediate syndrome and there's a a book that many people will have heard of called the killing zone which looked at general aviation pilots and that was i I don't remember if they called it intermediate syndrome in the book i don't think they did but they said pilots you know with about up to about 300 350 hours were the really vulnerable ones and there was a a critique of that book that I read recently and the guy who wrote the critique kind of looked at, at the author of the book's maths and to sort of not to kind of oversimplify what he did but he essentially said that well most pilots in the 50 to 350 hours bracket and so they're most likely to have accidents because that's where most of them are they need to compensate for that and those that who have flown for longer are alive by definition by the fact they've kept flying so you need to kind of compensate for the maths mm. and what he came up with actually was he he was like yeah there is an intermediate syndrome but it probably is probably up to about 2000 hours in general aviation pilots when you do the maths properly um which was uh was depressing for me because when i read that it was about two years ago and i'd just gone past 350 hours and breathed that enormous sigh of relief that's like 349 i was a dangerous life and then 351 i am sorted <laughs> And one hundred percent safe, and it's like oh, two thousand. That's gonna take a while. Yeah, you know um, what? That's I, I really like that. I have, um, you know, I think for a long time, and this might be numbers I'm just pulling from the sky, but you know, for a long time I kind of heard like five hundred hours. You know, so you're kind of fifty to five hundred hours, or like you said, I've heard three fifty a lot. Um, I like. I don't have the data, but it sounds like this guy does. Um, 2000 sounds a lot more reasonable to me and just, just now knowing the arc of, of my own flying and chasing it really hard. I think the other thing too, is if you don't log every single flight and hours, you know, whether that's on X contest or somewhere else, I think we have an often really inflate the numbers that we do. I mean, I hear people all the time, you know, saying that they got 250 or 300 hours. And I say, okay, well, you have to be like me then and basically unemployed and chasing it as hard as you possibly can. And I haven't seen you do that. You know, I mean, that that's a lot of hours. Um, you know, so when you hear like Antoine Girard get, that gets 500 hours a year, you know, I've known almost nobody that gets that kind of hours unless you're like a test pilot, you know? So, um, yeah. Anyway, back to the point that I think, yeah, I think intermediate syndrome is a much longer part of our flying career than we were either told or taught. Or, I mean, I think it's something we need to be wary of for much longer. Absolutely. And I mean, it comes down to, there's so many things in that. I mean, the first, to, to your original point, like when you, I chatted to some of the guys at the British Association and when people turn in their membership application every year, like it's always, it's always rounded to the nearest 10 you know no one has actually flown like 93.6 hours they've flown they've flown 90 or they've flown 100 it's like oh man everyone's landing like bang on the second how how good um so that's one thing i think the other thing is you know 
it comes down to denominators a bit like we were saying at the beginning with you know do you do it by people or do you do it by hours there's obviously the quality of the hours that you are mm. flying and the way that you are learning um but the more global point which is that um as they they said in that critique that i read mastery is assumed long before it is achieved yes you know we think we know what we're doing a, a lot sooner than we actually do well and and i that, heartily yeah. put myself in that bracket yeah and that was i guess that's my point with the with the 2000 hour thing is that i was i was the same you know i i'd done i'd done a couple big bivvies and my hours were getting up there and i'd done a bunch of siv and some acro training and i was kind of like whoo got through intermediate syndrome and then looking back at when i thought that to now it was just preposterous because now i know what I still don't know. There's just so much to learn. I mean, I think that's what keeps most of us really fascinated with this sport is that, you know, even back then when I had all that, I was such a neophyte. I just, man, I didn't know a lot and I still don't know a lot. And so I think it's one of these things that we should probably drag out a little bit longer. You're, you're, you're bending towards this exposure model. I, I take it. What Talk about that. Yeah. So this is, potentially a a quirk of some of the stats that we've done and that's why i've not really um published it in anything that we've we, you know we've, we've kind of put out so far but when you when i looked at the, the the kind of flying people were doing through the cross-country survey in my head i thought well the people who are the most current so the people who have the shortest gaps between their flights and the people who did the most flying, so the most current and the most experienced, well, they're going to have the least number of incidents because that's what you want to be, isn't it? You want to be a pilot who's flown loads this year and flew yesterday, not someone who flew one hour six months ago. And the data that we got, and I say this cautiously because there are limitations to every data set, didn't really support that. I mean, what kind of came out of that data was the more time you spend flying, the more likely you are to have an accident flying. Mm. Um, and that doesn't negate the value of experience. It probably reflects the fact that the more experience we get, the more risks we take. Mm. God, I, I can't even imagine trying to parse that kind of data. That must be really difficult. But yeah, that's that's something we talk about a lot, you know, currency versus exposure to risk. I, yeah. I, I've been grappling with this personally lately because I feel, you know, when I start adding it up, it's like, wow, I've been at this a long time. <laughs> you know, I participate in the X Alps, uh, you know, I participate in some stuff in aspects of the sport that aren't particularly quote unquote safe. Um, and yet I wouldn't do it if I didn't believe it could be done safely and through, you know, kind of religious training. But at the same time, yeah, you're out there doing it all the time. It is just odds. Yeah, I think it is odds, but there's there are nuances to it. And and the other thing is that, you know, if you don't want to die paragliding, don't go paragliding. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. There's so you have to as with all of this, there's gonna be risks and benefits. But I do think that there are safer ways for us all to fly. Um and I guess that's what the research that I've been doing is sort of coming towards, is what are the the key things that will make us safer pilots? Um, the problem is, is that we do do all this for fun. And so 
it's all very well me coming up with loads of rules, but you know, I would struggle to obey them. Like I, I fly because I love to fly. I fly because I love to be in the sky. If I say, you know, don't go above this altitude, well, that's going to be hard when the thermal's going up and I'm having a great time. It takes an enormous amount of self-discipline. Um, and I think a really great example of that is what happened on Mont Blanc last year. Mm, um, good example. Is that something you've discussed on the show no, before? No, it hasn't even come up. That, that's a great example because I was, of course, suffering the heat getting to St. Hilaire that day. So I'd like to hear about more fun, but also the dark side of that that day as well. Well, it was interesting. So I was um, working through in Verbier, so about 45 minutes from Chamonix. And I went through on the Wednesday afternoon. And as I uh, pulled into Chamonix, I saw all these gliders super high. And they were, you know, I went into the landing field and there were all these guys flying down. It's like just been on the summit of Mont Blanc. And I was pissed i was like i have i have missed this i was such a grumpy bastard to my poor wife like i was an absolute dick and i was like right that's it it's done never going to be able to land on there and like because actually the last time it had been landable i'd actually been in the air in chamonix and i was like oh this is a good day and i'd had to land because we had to catch a flight back to the uk so i was like man this is never gonna happen once once again a bit like a a bit like the covid crisis and me working for the boys it's all about me you know the real human tragedy real human tragedy here is, is what's happened to me so i was pissed and then during the course of the evening and the next day on launch where the winds were different they were kind of like northerlies they were um you know it kind of came out what just an absolute clusterfuck had been going on on the summit the day before um you know there were these sort of tails coming down of you know all these people being on there guys slipping all over the place failing to take off and you know as a community we can be quite judgy (laughs) there was quite a lot of like well i mean that guy should never have been up there right um but actually i think the truth is if you look at what happens physiologically when you fly at that altitude probably none of us should have been up there and so i took off the next day and um managed managed to climb over mont blanc um actually it was it was gorgeous flying this way because you couldn't come from the italian side you had to soar up the face of it and Mm. just to be soaring up the face of mont blanc was absolutely incredible um you know it was super emotional and as i was flying above the the summit there'd been a rule put out saying you can't land and i saw some people landing and like it took quite a lot of me not to just think well because it was super easy to land because it was just soaring up. So it was just have been like landing at the local hill. I was like, you know, you could just, you could just touch down. You, know, you could have a little touch and go. You could, you know, maybe, maybe you didn't tell anyone about it, but then, you know, at least you've landed. But I, I managed to resist and I managed to, to stay high and had a memorably wonderful flight. Um, but it did take a little bit of resisting. And if, if you can bear it, can we talk just a little bit about the physiology of what happens when you try and do something like that? Yeah, of course. That sounds fascinating. And I have a lot of experience with hypoxia flying here. So we all need to know about this. Well, I think, and that's a good point in itself. Like you have a lot of experience with hypoxia. A lot of the people who were there on that day didn't. Mm. Um, You take off at at the Brevon launch in Chamonix. And 
you know, it's lightest winds, you run, you forward launch, and you start flying. Then if you were quick, you could have, on that day, and certainly on the day before, you could have got yourself up to Mont Blanc altitude, so 4,800 meters, within about an hour and a half. And that's an enormous ascent rate. And so you're up there. And actually, the only reason I think why your body can tolerate that is because paragliding isn't very much work. Like we did a, a study um, with the help of Jockey Sanderson and the amazing folk at the Sharbra Open, where we worked out how much oxygen and how much energy you consumed flying a paraglider. And it was roughly the same as if you're driving a car. And the reason why, again, that's one of the things that retrospectively, like, well, of course it is. You just sit in a chair and pull two strings. But I, I'm always really tired when I land from a long flight. So I think that wasn't a given. But actually, that is the truth. It's, it's not that much effort to fly your paraglider. And I think that's how you can get up to that altitude. But when you're at that altitude, you have very little reserve. Like the margins are slim. And it's only the fact that flying the paraglider doesn't require much oxygen that allows you to do it. Mm. Um, to look at that at its most extreme, the fact that Antoine Girard managed to fly at 8,000 plus meters, I think is testament to the fact that one, he's an amazing pilot and two, he's a mountain guy, but also he was acclimatized and it didn't require much oxygen from him. But then you're then not probably not thinking that straight. You're quite cold, you're tired, you're exhilarated and you don't have much margin. Then land on the top of Mont Blanc. Then when it comes to take off again, you've, as we all know, you've got to run faster at high altitude because the air is thinner, so you need more speed to launch the wing. But then suddenly you need a massive amount of oxygen because you're trying to run fast at just under 5,000 meters. And then your body completely decompensates. And I think that's why we saw what we saw on Mont Blanc. It's because these guys were unacclimatized. They'd got ascended... 3,000 plus meters in a very short period of time. They got there simply because they weren't doing much. And then when suddenly they had to do stuff, the wheels fell off, everything fell apart. And I think that's what we saw. But the point of that story is that, does it stop people doing it? Absolutely not. Sure. It's, their, it's their hobby and it's what they want to do. And it takes an enormous amount of discipline to put the lessons that we learn about how to be a safe pilot into practice. And I don't underestimate what discipline is required. Mm. And I wonder too, you, you know, you say about that it's physically not very hard, which certainly is true. Um, flying cross country, but you know, to your point of being really tired, I think the caloric needs resemble jogging for the same amount of time or even more from what i i can't remember we had we had somebody on the show that that spoke about all this but your your caloric needs your glycogen needs from your brain burning so much energy are substantial so i wonder how much that plays a factor into that i mean i matt beesner my neighbor and you know mentor really is always talks about it kind of like going into the alien world you know when you're when you have a really long flight and this, this is different for different people, but you know, for him, it'd be like an eight plus hour flight kind of thing. 
um, you know, you land and you don't really feel the first time I really noticed this, I'm jumping around here a bit, but I, the first really big triangle I did out of fish and I made it back at, you know, 10 hours and 10 minutes after I took off back in fish and until my feet hit the ground, I felt like I was really with it. I was really on it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a good day and it was a really good day. Um, and then I landed and I could barely stand up. I was a gong show. I couldn't talk. I couldn't really process. I was just like, I mean, I was, I was euphoric and I'd had this amazing flight, but, um, you know, I hadn't been eating enough. Clearly I hadn't been drinking enough. And this is when I was pretty new. I've, I've learned how to, uh, help those things obviously and mitigate a bunch of that, but you know, you, you are burning a lot of juice. You absolutely are. And I mean, I love that feeling. Like I love that feeling of when you yeah. land and it's like the earth, the earth is alien for a minute or two. Right. But, I mean, my longest flights have, have been in beer and God, I love it when you do that, but um, you absolutely have to look after yourself up there. And what you talk about is, is true. You need to eat, you need to drink. Um, when you start to get into the real like weeds of what's going on in terms of your brain function and your you know, your caloric needs. Um, and we can delve into that if you want, because it's, it's, it's something that I'm very interested in. There, there are nuances to it, but the bottom line of, of you just need to look after yourself. You need to eat, you need to drink, and you need to fuel your mind and body, whether it's actually calories in the pure sort of sugar sense, or whether it's some of the other chemicals in the brain that are getting used up, I think is a point for discussion whoa that's awesome. um, i've never even thought about that so you might just be running out of dopamine or something you might be running out of adrenaline yeah it, was, it might it might be a i think is this is oh. so this is you, you kind of get into the edge of my area of knowledge here but like um because the way the brain works is it's, it's a great big bunch of nerves that are constantly moving potassium and sodium ions around that's how the brain works and thinking hard doesn't necessarily require much more movement of those things than's already going on so it may not require more calories mm. um but the effort of flying and the effort of being up there and having your heart beat fast and the physical and environmental stress of flying a paraglider certainly does sure. wow. I mean, one of the one of the things that and again, this is jumping around, but one of the things that we tried to do was simulate the paragliding flight environment. Um, and this was a classic example of me thinking something was a really good idea and getting in way over my head. Um, but I was helped by some really great people in doing so. Um, so for the last few years I've been doing my research, I've been very fortunate to have signed on um, as a PhD student at a laboratory called Extreme Environments Lab in Portsmouth. And they specialize primarily in cold water immersion. They're kind of a temperature lab, but they, they do more hypoxia and other stuff. And the professor there is a guy called Mike Tipton, who's a remarkable guy. And, and the other guys who work there, um, Claire Eglin, Heather Matty, Jeff Long, these, these guys are masters at framing a question. You know, so I think, okay, well, what happens to your brain when you fly? And they're like, okay, slow down. What question are you actually trying to ask there? Um, and so that was the question I came to them with. The question we ended up trying to test is if you went on a ramped flight 
So if you flew over two hours to 3,658 metres and then came straight down, how well is your brain working? Just pretty specific. And then we said, okay, well, if you add some environmental stresses, so if you add cold and you add a headwind and you add the hypoxia that you would experience at that altitude, then how well is your brain working? And that was the question we tried to solve. Because I think when you fly in the places you do in Sun Valley or when you fly in, you know, you fly over Mont Blanc, like you're definitely not the full shilling. But I was kind of interested a bit more like if you fly, say, Alpine altitudes, what's happening there? So we built this simulator and we got uh, a pod harness and we got uh, essentially a big fridge in a hypoxic chamber and a fan. And we simulated the headwinds if you were flying at, you know, 35 kilometers an hour, 36 kilometers an hour. And we got people to do cognitive tests. We looked at these different aspects of brain function. Um and what I got from that result, from that study, was a great big muddle. <laughs> the reason why I got a great big muddle from it um, was because we're all very different. So what what physiologists would call inter-individual variability, there's a lot of it. Like, And when you look at cognitive function, particularly, um, we really vary in how things like hypoxia and cold affect us, except in the broadest, broadest sense. Some people get bit better with a little bit of hypoxia and a little bit of cold most people get a bit worse then because it's a simulator and it's really hard to do and it's really faffy we were able to test 20 people um 10 in the sim 10 as controls which isn't very many when you've got all that vulnerability and then you say okay well i'm doing all these cognitive tests if i if my guy doesn't do so well on this puzzle what does that mean when he's trying to decide whether or not to land on Mont Blanc. Can I link the two? I don't know. I don't think you can very well. And then there's the last problem with simulating anything, which is it's not scary being in a simulator. And the decisions you make in a simulator don't matter. Mm. You know, you you lose the game, but you don't lose your life. Mm, that's and a huge component. Yeah. Isn't like it? That. Yeah, of course. Exactly. So then you try and draw conclusions from this and it's really difficult. And I think the only conclusion I could take from it is that when you're flying for a couple of hours at alpine altitudes, um, you are not so grossly distorted that, for example, you need oxygen. But I would be wary to make any broader conclusions from that and it's i really learned from that experiment um and that's why in the reserve experiments i then did instead of 20 people i had 55 in the first one and 88 in the next one and we tried to answer a much simpler question right so that was as much my journey as a researcher as anything else but it it sounds like i mean i i don't want to put words in your mouth but it it sounds like maybe the conclusion of the the hypoxia study mirror in a sense what we were talking about with knowing how you react. My, my first real experience that I know of at least um, with hypoxia was many, many, it was just right after college. I was climbing down in the Andes in, in Bolivia and 
I don't know, we were up 17 something and that the day that we were trying to summit, there were three of us and it was just really interesting. We all got hypoxic, though at the time, I don't know if we knew what that was, um, but it was it was really interesting to see the differences in the three of us. You know, the, the this girl we were with was just hysterical. She just became like a comedian. Um, my buddy was like, a, he just turned into a little shit. He was just down and pissed and irritable about everything. And I was just kind of like happy go lucky. I was just kind of like, you know, kind of everything had better colors. It was almost like I was on something. And, um, <laughs> and I've noticed this in, in, I, I, so my point is, I, I think you have to get kind of aware of how you, deal with it and since then and with all the flying i've done even when i have oxygen we just we we often spend a lot of time really high here and especially this last month i've had a lot of really tall flights and um i i've gotten in the habit of trying to give myself i'm not very good at math anyway but i'll i'll give myself like really basic math problems as i start pushing up over 16 and a few of these flights I haven't flown with oxygen more because I'm I, I hike and fly, whatever. I, I've blown the forecast and I'm taller than I think I would have been. And so most of the time it's just trying to save weight. And uh, and so I won't have the oxygen and I'll start doing these math problems. And, you know, one plus one and two times two and easy stuff. But I started getting into the moderately difficult. <laughs> and I re- like, wow. And I, the point is I feel fine, but I'm not work. I'm clearly not operating very well. And it's, so it's just, a, it's just a kind of a signal to me, like, okay, you need more margin. You're kind of goofy. You're kind of silly. If you were on the radio right now, I don't think anybody would understand you. Even though in my mind, I feel like everything is totally fine. Totally. I think that's true. And obviously as you get more frostbitten, and it's hard to do the math problems because you lose the fingers. But right. I think the, um, the bit that I think it's important to separate there is this, the, the kind of flying you're doing, like the really tall flying when hypoxia is a problem you should be flying with oxygen and you need to know as you say what what they would call in aviation medicine your hypoxic signature Mm. so there's some great videos on youtube of like where you you see these super competitive mega macho american fighter pilots like you know at twenty five thousand feet and the chamber in which their training depressurizes and you see them just kind of mashing these kids toys together and giggling um which is, I mean, that's, that's great to watch. The um, and you know, I actually discovered through through going to a chamber myself that my hypoxic signature is like I, I like start saying the word rad a lot, which is a very like oh, English person. Funny. It's just it's really different. I was like, man, that was so rad. I was like, oh dear, oh, <laughs> so that's oh, not yeah. your it's not your style, man. <laughs> um, but uh, the the lower altitudes are the interesting ones though. And that's why in the studies we did, we went up to, to just 10,000 feet, you know, to, or 12,000 feet, sorry, 3,660 meters, because there, you know, as soon as you leave the ground, like your body starts to change. Um, but I was kind of interested if in the paragliding environment, the unique mix we have of, of cold and hypoxia, um, at these say Alpine altitudes, what are our brains doing then? Are we impaired and are we unable to make good decisions? And the answer is, I don't know, but I don't think so. Hmm. Interesting. That, that's, that's super interesting. Before we totally leave this subject, you mentioned quite a while back that the three main things of pilot error 
uh, decisions in glider control, misjudgment of distance, passive safe, safety is the is the is not the most important factor. Can we dig a little bit more into those, especially misjudgment of distance? This is a new one for me. Yeah, no, with pleasure. Um, and those are, I think, hmm, our best approaches. Okay, I guess when you look at aviation as a whole, um, there's been some amazing work done by some guys called Weekman and Chappelle, and they've got this thing called the Human Factors. Um, analysis and classification system, HVACs. And it's actually really simple and it's well worth a look. And what they do is they have this big tree in which every error, say a skill-based error, which is, you know, do you turn the glider left or right? Do you move your airliner where it needs to go? Is at the root of this enormous tree of different influences. Um, But when they put all their findings together, initially for military aviation and then for commercial aviation, then for general aviation, they found that it was well-meaning wrong decisions and an inability to adequately control the glider or the aircraft under the circumstances that led to the majority of accidents. When I analysed that in paragliding, it was exactly the same. Mm. On a minor on a more minor level, they, they had this category of perceptual errors. Um, and in, you know, commercial aviation terms, that might be, you know, how they read the instruments or how they read the landing lights. Um, really, the only relevant one for us um, was misjudgment of distance. So that would either be distance on the cloud, and, which I always find really difficult. Mm-hmm. Like I always think, oh, I've got ages to go, and then suddenly it's all gone white. Um, or misjudgment of distance on landing. Um, and those kind of perceptual errors are a minor component of what happens to us. There are ways to make it easier, as we all know, you know, fix on a point, fix on a landmark, or um, time your turns, all these things. But that's still a minor part. The bit that really matters are the decisions we make and how we control the glider. And so the passive safety is not the most important factor. I think it's you know, you talk to pilots and I'm the same, like you buy a new glider and you spend ages, like, you know, you look at dust of the universe, you look at the reviews, you're like, mm, it's got this, new, it's bad. you look at the EN testing and the gliders are undoubtedly becoming more and more safe if you do nothing. But I think the problem is, is we do stuff. Yeah. We try and control our glider, we make bad decisions and we misjudge distance. <laughs> so I don't think passive safety, well, desirable, and it's great that it's still improving and you get improvements of performance with it. I don't think it's passive safety that keeps us safe. And Stefan Bernhardt on a recent podcast was talking about that. I think he's like, you need to train active pilots. You don't need yeah. safe gliders. Yeah. Alex, Alex Roby said the same thing. I mean, I think that, yeah. And that, and the, and the classifications are, um, yeah, we've, we have, I've, I've talked about that stuff to death. I mean, it's, you, you really very much go from, as Theo shows in his videos, you know, just hands up and it will recover to it's a whole different animal and then that's not going to work. And, um, you know, so it requires very different skills, but yeah, I think it's, I think, again, it's more important to know who we are and how we react than, you know, relying on something like passive safety, you know, what kind of pilot do you want to be? Absolutely. And like I say, the glider is not the problem. It's great that it's safe. It's us that's the problem. Right. <laughs> like we right. we make the bad decisions. We do the errors, and 
um i think so i mean we we want to keep flying we don't want to beat ourselves with sticks like you know so the question is 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 how do you how do you then build constructively on knowing that you are the problem and i think i'm a massive advocate of siv or pilotage or whatever you want to call it but i think I think the way you find out the kind of pilot you are and I think the way you train reactions and the way you understand is you have to feel stuff. So I've been trying to do as much SIV as possible because I, I try try at least try to practice what I preach. And I think the bits that are really valuable, um, I've done a few courses. Um, I've done brilliant ones with Jockey. I've done some brilliant ones with with Malin and, Fly, and Fabian Flyo. Um, I've messed about over various lakes and occasionally hard grounds. And the bits that are really valuable in SIV, I think, aren't the complicated stuff. They're not stalls. You know, they're not spins. It's useful to be able to spin to get rid of a cravat. But understanding the power of the glider, understanding how to get out of auto rotation, understanding when you've not got control, those are the things that I think you need to gain from it. And the, the huge skill of the SIV instructor, and that's why I think it has to be done so sensitively because it has to build confidence. The huge skill is getting you to understand these things without scaring you witless. Mm. Yeah. And that takes time and training. It really does. And an SIV where someone comes out scared is a completely pointless experience. Right. Um, that's going to make somebody freeze more. Um. I'm utterly convinced of that. But, uh, you know, I I lost a friend uh, last year who was a relatively new pilot and he died because he wasn't able to correct auto rotation. He was flying an A glider. He was flying a glider with passive safety. He had a collapse. He went into auto rotation and he was fresh out of school. He not had the, op- and he was someone who would have trained he would have done SAV, he would have done pilotage, but he hadn't had the opportunity to do that. And that's what we come back to what we we're saying about the beginning of, of training being far, far too short. I mean, it has to be in, I understand why it's the length it is, but we are vulnerable when we come out. We need to keep learning. And I'm really desperate for new pilots to do these courses in the right way and with the right instructor early and to learn how to come out of auto rotation. If my friend had been able to just pull the opposite brake hard enough and soon enough, I'm convinced that he would still be alive. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I mean that's that's one of the big subjects with this search and rescue that I was on uh, for Kiwi, and he's still you know this. Hopefully, this information will change by the time this show goes up. But as of Sunday, the fifth of September, when you and I are talking, he's still vanished. So it's been two weeks and a day. Um, you know, I w- there was just very little clues other than, you know, his last ping was at 14,500 feet and then everything just went dark. So no radio, no inreach, no more, no more tracking, obviously no SOS, no, no messages. Um, and so, you know, you start when you, when you really, really search, it was quite dense. So, you know, people can pis- disappear in dense stuff as we see all the time in, in the Alps and Valle and, you know, people go through the canopy and just vanish. But, um, so that, that certainly could have happened, but you start to, you start to put together, okay, well, you know, what, what are the things that 
could have taken him down to the ground before a ten, you know, before the next ping, which was ten minutes later. You know, when you're that tall, you know, you're not, you're not really. Most likely, you're not having a cascading event. Uh, you haven't thrown your reserve because we would, you know, have a very good chance of, you know, it's one thing for your wing to disappear, but your reserve and your wing harder. You know, um, that's just more stuff that we can see from the sky, whether it be helicopters or fixed wings or drones or just walking around. We had a lot of people on this on this search and still do. Um so, you know, the the two most dangerous things or the most, you know, the most consequential for sure are being gift wrapped, you know, not sorting out a reinflation after a big stall or something. You know, maybe you have a frontal and it goes behind you and then not catching it and you go into the wing. So you can't because basically we were operating on okay, he didn't get his reserve out because this is a pilot who has thrown his reserve quite a bit. He knows they work. We know that, you know, he was pretty risk averse and pretty smart. And so we believe he would have gotten his reserve out if we could have. And so the other one is the auto rotation because often um, it can be pretty hard to get your reserve out when you've got that much G-force. So, you know, the, the, the possibilities are obviously more than that, but those are the two that we came up with that, okay, those are the two things that are going to get you to the ground pretty quick without a possible deployment. Well, first and foremost, I really hope that he is found and, and he is okay. And he emerges like Guy Anderson with a story so to tell. Too. But I, 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 you know, I realize how difficult that must be. And um, I'm very grateful, as I guess all pilots are, that there are people like you guys who go out and search. I mean, there is a third factor, and this is not to speak to what's happened to, to Kiwi, but one of the things we don't know about pilots is, is how many accidents are a result of what you call medical incapacitation sure. so if someone flies very high that's the other consequence of hypoxia is it puts enormous strain on the heart and so you don't know about people who have hypos or who have heart attacks or who have other things in the air because when you know if there is an, an accident as a result of it it's very hard to work out what caused what um again that's not to sort of dwell on this you know, in this instance, but I think that's another factor that's that's sure. not considered. But that's also that also doesn't say we need to all have medicals because well, I don't think we should go down some big legislative route with that. Right, right. Well, and it was you know, and it it also kind of fits the bill where where this one fell apart for us a little bit was just the ten minute thing. But you know, if you're if he'd had a heart attack in the air, um, you know, and he wasn't really fit, so that's certainly possible. And he was in his fifties, so certainly possible. Um, you know, that would explain one of the reasons that the inReach stopped tracking because he might have bent over his instruments. Um, so certainly, you know, the, you know, we explored those and that's certainly a possibility. You know, the, the problem then is usually, a, you know, a, an unmanned glider, you know, unless he, unless he had like a big spasm or something and buried one of the brakes, he probably would have flown for a while. You know, there was some wind and he was tall and you know, I think again, the chances are maybe higher to find uh, a person in that scenario than than not. But that does explain the potential for the the inReach stopped working because you're 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 over it. You know. Mm. Yeah. Oh, like I say, a hundred percent hoping for the best. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, we've got we got the A team out there looking for him. It's been uh, you know, there's there's always positives out of these, and that's. 
yeah, hard to say obviously right now, but the, you know, we, we learn a lot from each one of these. Unfortunately, many of us have been involved in many, um, and you know, there'll be, there'll be great learning from this as there has been in, in all of them. Um, but it's also, it's just, it's real heartening, I guess. I'm not sure that's the right word, but to just see our community in action, it's unbelievable. You know, he, he, he disappeared on Saturday and by Monday morning, you know, we had just teams around the world and it's, you know, and there, there'll be, I'll do a big article on this and we'll do a podcast, I'm sure just specifically about this incident. But, you know, it was, it was incredible to just see the organization, A, that's required uh, on something like this, just from the, you know, managing the telegram groups and managing the gear resources and managing the fundraising. And, you know, the, so there's all of that. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of frustration in our community for people that couldn't be there looking for him, but it's been amazing to see, you know, there's so much that people can do. You know, we've had people working on this all over the world and it's been in there and it's been invaluable. It's not, and not just to, it's not just for them that it makes them feel better that they're helping, but it's actually stuff that we really need on the ground, you know, studying satellite imagery and contacting military. I mean, it's just, I guess what my point is, is that our community is way more resourceful than almost any search and rescue team. Um, and we, we have, we have people from so many different backgrounds that can pull in crazy resources, whether that's Google or satellites or tech or, you know, like I said, fundraising. I mean, that's one of the main aspects of going to look for somebody is having the money to do it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, it's tragic and I do hope we find him and I hope he's sitting by a spring somewhere. Um, but it's, it's also, it, it was, it makes me feel better about us as a community for sure, because it's been really, it's been really neat to see, um, how everybody pulls together, makes it happen. Definitely. I mean, there's been a lot of, times over the last few years when I've been very glad to be a paraglider pilot and you know you see things like that so the um I think it was a Spanish chap who who went missing in beer who fortunately turned up you know the, mm. the efforts and fundraising that that went into him and and even as I said when I lost my friend like the I am fortunate to be part of a fantastic local group of pilots in Scotland and they were amazing mm. they rallied around and you know and I went flying uh 10 days later um, the police had impounded my glider, um, <laughs> which was like, oh, I mean, you know what? Like, we've got to love our our friends in blue. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, you know, you know when something really tragic happens, what you tend to do is you tend to like pick some other random thing to get really pissed off about. Mm. So I decided that the hill upon which I would make my stand was the fact that the uh, the police had impounded my glider because they couldn't tell the difference between the one that belonged to my friend who'd had an accident and the one that belonged to me despite the fact that my one had my name on it didn't have any of the lines cut and wasn't covered in blood but um when i actually was able to get my glider back i, I went flying with um my friends um from the local club and they, it was just a it was it was quite a it was a very moving experience to be back in the air again thinking of the person who who we'd lost and but also just the support of, of those around you to get you back in the air. It was a really moving thing 
Mm, and, well, and hugely appreciated. I'm sorry about your friend, and it's it's un- unfortunately. I mean, that's why we talk about it so much on the podcast and going up to launch and everything else. It's just a part of our sport, and it's just it's going to keep happening. But hopefully, we can, you know, through your studies and, um, you know, looking into all these reasons that it happens, we can make it less and less. I don't think we'll ever get to zero, obviously, but we can we can help. Um, and I appreciate that. But so. Before we're going to move on to SIV, uh, some more thoughts there. I, I forgot to ask you the final question about hypoxia. Um, are we doing damage to ourselves? I mean, is it like mountaineers that spend time at death zone for too much time? Is it is part of the reason we should fly with oxygen just because we want to save our brains? I don't think we're doing that much damage okay. for the short periods of time that we're up there. Um it's, there's been some really interesting studies of, as you say, very high altitude mountaineers. And also speaking of someone who spent three months living at just under 5,000 meters in Nepal, lower altitude mountaineers, that you can um, you can get changes in the white matter of your brain on MRI scan after spending long periods of time at altitude. I think the bit where we might damage ourselves is cold. Mm. So one of the things that came out of that simulator study is just how cold our hands get. Um we were kind of simulating UK style conditions. And when I was trialing the simulator, I was like, oh yeah, this kind of feels like how it is flying at home. But I had temperature sensors on my skin because the university said we had to, it's part of the kind of ethics thing. And we were measuring skin temperatures that breached the university ethics guidelines, (laughs) um, which was something of a worry. And it made me think that it's, it's not a huge thing, but but we're quite vulnerable to something called non-freezing cold injury, which is in when you get frostbite, the tissue freezes. When you get a non-freezing cold injury, it gets to between naught and about six degrees. And so it doesn't freeze, but you get changes in the nerves and the blood vessels of your fingers. And it means that the fingers become much more vulnerable to cold each time they then get re-exposed. So, you know, I guess anyone who's a kayaker um, who's got really cold hands is then when they go into the outdoors, they often get those kind of white fingers and Mm. and they get screaming barfies when they come back to you. It's becoming more and more recognized, mostly in the military context where this has been well studied, but in the outdoor industry as well, that if you keep getting really cold hands, you can end up with pain and you can end up with loss of sensation or altered and annoying sensation in your fingers and when you talk to mountain guides and others this is a bit of a part of life for them but i think it's something that we can avoid as paraglider pilots and we should avoid because i think we are probably damaging ourselves a little bit there and you know lots of these people are lots of folk who listen to your podcast are you know very hardcore outdoors people but just the basics keeping your core warm investing in a decent pair of gloves but letting your hands down when it's safe to do so letting the blood flow come back to them don't let your hands get to that stage where they are ice cold where you can't feel your fingers where you get the screaming barfies when they come back to you um because actually even that is a distraction it's something that's going to mentally distract you from your flying so irrespective of whatever damage you're doing having very cold hands is going to impair your flight performance 
but just I think pay pay attention to your fingers. I would say. Yeah, I can speak to this personally. Recently, this this spring, I had a solo flight out of here, and it wasn't a particularly tall day. You know, thirteen, fourteen. It's still tall, I guess, for the Alps, but for here, not so. But in spring, it's just it's brutal. It's so cold, and I have tried everything: the heated gloves and the whole deal. Um, and I I was really well dressed, um, and I had the heated gloves, which in my opinion, just don't work. Uh, and what I didn't have were the, you know, the kind of pogies that you're seeing a lot of the Himalayan pilots use, which are now the way I have solved this, but I didn't have them that day. Um, you know, so these are like the down warms, the, you know, the, like the sleeve, the down sleeve yeah. things, the winds ride as well. Which are, yeah. you know, think it's, it's, you have to think about the, all aspects of that when it comes to reserves and flying on your bees and just mobility with your hands. But I, uh, just about a month ago, I got my middle finger back, um, and, and not fully still, but, you know, basically all summer, um, I couldn't feel down to the second knuckle at all, which for a writer make, makes typing really tricky. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I, I had never, I had never, I'd, they'd never gotten that bad. I'd, I had always treated it as just, you know, like the screaming barfies, but I'm, I'm noticing it now, whether it's part of that's age or not, I don't know, but that it, they just seem to keep getting worse. I mean, in other words, the, the, the damage has been done and I've got to be way more vigilant about keeping them warm than I used to. I, they just seem to get colder faster. They do. And that's, that is exactly what's going on. And it's it's not aging particularly, it's re-exposure. It's just that constant getting it cold, warming it up again, getting it cold, mm. warming it up again. So mm. um as with all of these things, it's you know, it's it's never too late. And actually just really working hard to prevent those hands getting cold um is how you're gonna stop it getting worse. I think it's it's really difficult because the position we fly in as paragliders is like guaranteed cold. Like you've got the your hands are high, so the blood's got to overcome a gradient to get to your fingers. The warm blood that kind of comes from your core goes under your armpits and then round past your elbow and then to the front of your wrists. So if you think about the position we have in the brake lines, all of that is exposed to the airflow. So that's going to get cold. And then what happens is when your hands are up for a while in the brake lines, the muscles, um, particularly your biceps, get cold. And they start acting like heat sinks. So the warm blood that's come from your core then passes by this cold muscle, has to overcome this gradient, gets colder and colder and colder, eventually makes it to your fingers. And then your fingers are looped around the brake line. So they, it pulls there. So if you wanted to design a system to get cold hands, it's paragliding. <laughs> it's perfect. Perfectly designed for freezing your hands. Um Matt, I want to be mindful of your time. I know it's getting late at your end of the world. We're an hour and a half in, and I feel like we could go for several more hours. So we might have to we might have to do a part two of this. But what in your list here do you feel like we need to tag? I, I know I want to end on your refinement of accidents and trauma and what we should be carrying with us, which we 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 talked about pretty extensively in your first show. And everybody listening, you need to go back and check that out to you know, what, what belongs in a first kid. I know you've refined that. So I want to end with that, but what, what haven't we hit here that you want to before we move to that? Sure. I mean, there's a couple of, um, short things that it'd be nice to mention. The, the first is, um, I've been learning a lot more about G-forces lately, um, <laughs> partly by screwing up a bunch of times over late Garber. That was last week. <laughs> um, but also, um, 
through the reserve parachute studies that I've just done. Um, G-forces are really interesting because your G-tolerance changes. And you wouldn't think it because you'd think it would just really be the gap between your heart and your neck and how fast you were going round and round. But um, I don't know if you've tried this, but when I start the season, you know, I start doing spiral dives and I'll start to get that kind of gray out thing mm. at these really not very deep spiral dives, you know, four, six meters per second. And then by the end of the season, you can confidently hit 16 down without any problems. And it really hit home to me that your ability to tolerate g-force changes um it's affected by how cold you are whether you're hydrated whether you've had something to eat and drink yet another good reason um certainly if you're hypoxic or if you've got you know any illnesses and also just how often you've been flying that's going to change your tolerance to g and i think one of the things for people who do long flights is be aware that your tolerance to g can drop through that flight Mm. as you become tired and as you um perhaps eat less you know you're not drinking perhaps as much as you should as you become a bit colder all of these things are going to drop your g tolerance and i think that can sometimes catch people by surprise even for those who aren't doing kind of big uh big flights or big spirals it's worth just having a little look at some of the ways you can train your g tolerance you know there are there are maneuvers that pilots do these kind of straining maneuvers where you like tense your abdomen and like imagine like you're trying to have a big shit or you're you know you're really trying to kind of breathe out against resistance that if you look for um it's called the g-straining maneuver then you'll see loads of examples and information how to do that on the internet but just learning something like that is really helpful and it can massively increase your tolerance um so if you do find yourself at the end of a long flight and you need to do a big spiral diet it's worth knowing how to do these things beforehand and mm. um, so that was just a, a quick mention of g sure um the other the other bit that um, I kind of wanted to mention um, was some of the reserve parachute stuff that we've been doing. So I, uh, I've i done two experiments with reserve parachutes, one where we sent 55 people down a zip line. Um, and we said, as soon as you feel yourself going down the zip line, try and chuck your reserve parachute as fast as you can. And we stressed people out a little bit. We gave them tasks so before they were sent down the zip line you had them look at two led lights and try and match what those lights were doing with their brake lines that meant their eyes were as if they were looking up at their wing we then tried to get them to say every word they can beginning with the letter a which was absolutely hilarious um it was mostly yes our community as speaking for the british parallel community at least seems to be focused on aardvarks the antichrist and anal those are those were the big hitters for that but um <laughs> people said those a lot um and then we sent people down the zip line and we found a bunch of stuff and i think like i said earlier we have all these barriers to us throwing in the reserve like we have barriers like you know us trying to fix the wing or us becoming task fixated or losing altitude awareness so when we actually decide to throw it that i mean that thing has just got to come out and so the purpose of the studies that I was really doing were kind of working out some of the, the kind of barriers between human and reserve parachute to getting that parachute out. Um, there's a, a video that um, I'm sure we can link to that I made during the zipline studies. It's actually, it's really long. And it's quite dry, <laughs> which I apologize. And it looks um, a little bit like it was, it was hosted by the amazing Andre Bandara, um, mm. who wasn't dry at all, but it does look 
on the video like I've been locked in his basement for some time. <laughs> but um, we kind of go into the findings and details there, but there's some things that I would like people to know. Um, the first is that you need to work out what direction your reserve parachute likes to be pulled out in. Um, if I can make one plea to manufacturers, people who set standards, and I have been making these pleas, please design harnesses where reserve parachutes come out in any direction. Um, but if you look at some harnesses, some harnesses say you have to pull a parachute out sideways, laterally. 70% of people on the zip line pulled upwards. That's just what we humans do. Mm. They like You like to use the big muscles of your yeah. biceps and, well, not my big muscles. Those with big muscles like to use them. Um, but uh, you like to use these kind of core muscles and you instinctively pull upwards. And we saw people on those videos change their grip to pull upwards even harder, even though their reserve parachute was stuck. Mm. So work out what direction your parachute likes to come out in. If it likes to come out sideways, practice, practice, practice you are the person who needs to be you know hanging up from the pull-up bar with a cushion repeating that action over and over again and then petition your harness manufacturer to make your parachute come out in any direction you want when you say sideways do you mean so you're like let's just all together right now we're facing forward we're in our pod we reach down you mean sideways like doing a shoulder raise out to your side yes geez that's hard it's not most of us aren't very strong in that position yeah, it's not strong. It's not natural. And as a result, we don't do it. Yeah. Like most of us told to do it, we just pull upwards, which is what you want to do. But unfortunately, some harnesses are designed such that the parachute doesn't come out very easily if you do that. Mm-hmm. And that is that is an example of a gear fail. Yeah. Like that's where the gear needs to be better. Like any direction you pull it, it needs to come out. Here's another, um, I'm sorry to throw this in, but here's another gear failure that I just learned on this search and rescue. We do not, we should not be making wings that blend in with our environment. You know, the, I'm over the white and blue wings. They, they don't, I mean, you, we should all be flying red or orange gliders unless we're flying in the Wyoming red desert, <laughs> you know, then you need something yeah. else. But um, think about this. There are things, you know, you, your rescue teams need to have orange shirts on. I mean, it's just then you can spot everybody. Uh, you know, if we wear colors that blend in and fly wings that blend in, think about that if you go in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <laughs> an example of that. So uh, Stefan, who you had on your podcast, who's a fantastic guy. Um, as you know, he is all you know. He is all that is man. And I was flying with him in Colombia, and he was flying a black glider and a black harness. And you just see this thing, this black Enzo come up behind you and you hear through the radio, contact, four ship, hostile. <laughs> <laughs> that worries me. That um, works. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're, you're quite right. Um, some of the other things that I it would be great for people to check is we found that the harnesses, you know, the harnesses that have an integrated deployment bag. So where the, the deployment bag comes with the harness, not uh not with the reserve mm. those work better generally speaking mm. um but for the ones where you have to attach a handle check how long the strop the bit that connects the handle to the reserve bag is it needs to be long enough that you know when you pull the handle it doesn't you know rotate the deployment bag or pull it before the pins are released because it's not going to come out at all but it needs to be short enough that 
the bag is well clear of the harness before your arm is fully extended. And if you look at the videos, I, I show example of this. But we um, we had quite a number of of smaller pilots, shorter pilots, opponents um, of female pilots, who they would pull their reserve handle, and this strop was so long that the reserve would just still be in the harness when their arm was fully extended. Hmm. So that's definitely something to check. Again, hang it up, have a go. Um, but doesn't that, thing, does, Matt, doesn't that resolve itself when you throw it? Well, it's really hard to throw if your arm is like fully out as if at the end of your throw and the bag is still in the harness. Hmm. Okay. Because whenever whenever I've thrown, I always do this kind of double motion thing. I rip it forward like up near my head and then I huck it back. Yeah, and that's an interesting one of itself because we, we found some problems with that. So I, I was taught the same. I was taught kind of do a two thing, you know, get it out and then throw it backwards. The problem is, is that the bag has obviously its own inertia and there's a slight delay between your hand and it. And so we saw a couple of examples of um, the, well, one the most memorable one, which I show in the video actually, is where the bag comes out and wraps around the guy, the strop wraps around the guy's wrist mm. because it's all so long. And then he's able to throw the, it's not the strop, sorry, the bridle wraps around the guy's wrist and then he throws the reserve. So actually if that reserve had come out, it would have just pulled his shoulder out of his socket. Oh God. So Ugh. I know. So that's the disadvantage of the double. Um, so I kind of came away thinking that people should just throw in a single sweep mm. that you should locate the handle and just chuck the whole thing backwards okay so what people will then say um and this is another interesting thing is well actually if you chuck it backwards isn't it going to tangle and the the big problem is you know is you can throw your reserve and then it can get stuck in the main wing and if you're in a kind of auto rotation or sat type configuration that's when it's most likely to get munched and i was chatting to um uh, a guy called Gabe um, the other day. He's quite a remarkable bloke. Um, if you look at Party Till Impact, this is Instagram, but he's a man who set his reserve parachutes on fire, who um, <laughs> does all sorts of crazy things. And um, he's like, well, the thing you need to do is you need to chuck the reserve parachute down between your legs because then it's least likely to end up in your parachute. And when the DHV did some studies, they got some mathematicians to work out what's the best direction to chuck your reserve parachute? And they said, oh, you should always chuck it towards your feet. The problem with this advice is that, one, it relies on that kind of two-stage motion, which I don't think works very well. Secondly, it relies on people having the kind of wit to do that. And my other plea is, is don't overcomplicate the process. Let it unless you are a test pilot, unless you are an acro pilot, unless you're someone who's super used to chucking their reserve, please just throw it. Don't waste too much time and effort thinking I should throw it in this direction or that direction, or it might get much. Just get the thing out and then fix any problems that might then arise. That would be my advice. And particularly for people training pilots, I would strongly advise them to just train. Find the handle, chuck the thing away. That's what matters. So this this sounds like this is going to go against this. You tell me what you found. Um, one of the things I learned from Cody and all the acro training I've done with him, and you know he's doing the infinite and stuff. I mean he's way beyond my level, but 
I, I I promised not him, but one of his students recently about a week ago was has been learning the heli for the last couple of years and wanted me to reemphasize this on the podcast because it's something I've talked about quite a bit because I I feel like it's really important. But before you throw, whether it's left or right, or you know if you've got two systems or one, um, to bury your brakes, you know to grab. You know, before you just let go of your right brake to go with your right hand to reserve, just put them in both hand, and you know, ideally you're in like a nice deep tail slide. You're you're not holding it in like deep stall, which is a really, uh, you know, a configuration that can go haywire really fast. But it, but a tail slide super easy. You just bury the brakes, um, and I mean, at worst you're in a in a stall ball, which is also fine. But the the point is is if what happens to a lot of people is they're way too hands-on and so they, they they in other words they haven't relied enough on the passive safety they put, put their hands up it's going to solve most of the problems a lot of people don't they feel like their hands are up and they're just waving all over the place with their arms and so that puts them into the cascade and then they go to throw and the wing is finally given an opportunity to get back under control uh, which it does when you go to throw and then you end up in the wing. You end up getting gift wrapped. So this keeps the wing in a stable configuration where it's not going to restart. And I think that's especially important if you're low. Um, you know, if you allow your wing to restart and you're low, then you've got the whole pendulum thing happening instead of just – if you just kept it in a in a pretty stable deep stall or a tail slide, you're probably going to walk away. That's basically like coming down under a very – small reserve um i'm not sure i agree with that one okay. and uh, the reason why is yeah it's just too complicated like i think if you're the sort of person who has the skills and presence of mind to be like hmm, i need to throw my reserve i'm going to put myself in a really deep tail slide then you know you might uh, you might have not have found yourself in that situation in the first place mm. i think the reason um i think if you have the skills and presence of mind and experience to really control the reserve throw, then, then there are definitely configurations that are going to be favorable to you, exactly like you just described. But what I've seen from my studies, 55 pilots on the zip line and then 88 pilots, uh, you know, going round and round at 4G, what I've seen from that is people don't have that capacity. Mm. Like they, you know, even just trying to get people to do a task as simple as saying words while moving their brake lines, most people can only do one or the other. They can't do both at the same time. And seeing people trying and fail to problem solve, seeing people scrabbling around for handles, for all these things. A lot of times people, some would leave their hands in the brakes when they grab the handles. Some would let them go completely. Others would grab the risers. People do all sorts of funky stuff. I think it's unrealistic to tell people to do anything other than just throw it. Just throw it. That would that would be my view. Again, as you train more and you become more experienced, time slows. As you say, you can do more. You can put yourself in a better position. But I think for most people, rather than thinking I've got to bury the brakes, I've got to do that. Just get the thing out. Just chuck it. Mm. Okay. Great. Anything else on? the reserve stuff before we move on um very small one um just if you are a front mounted reserve person make sure that it's secured at the base because what tends to happen with the front mounts is you grab the handle you pull the handle up and the reserve pod 
comes with you if you assume if it's not secured at the base if it's just secured at the carabiners then it's really mobile and you get a much less effective throw I, I, I want to make sure that everybody understands what you're talking about describe secured at the base sure so imagine you've got um a front reserve that's secured from two loops at the top of it to your carabiner so it's kind of dangling there and it can move up and down and imagine if you then put your hand on the handle of that reserve and you just very gently lifted the handle you'd be able to move the whole reserve pod with you Mm -hmm. it would come up so what you need to do is have some other point at which it's secured so be it that it gets secured to a leg strap or something else so when you then pull the handle the reserve pod doesn't move it stays where it is so you pull the handle and the parachute comes with you and is this something in your video yes okay yeah cool. it's it's really clear we've got some examples of that okay, I um, I again i apologize for the hard la- time visualizing that yeah no for sure and it's yeah it's definitely not something it's definitely something easier to see than describe and again apologies for the length of the video um the uh the next study that we've done um we then took the the lessons we learned from that zip line and we uh went to Flugschule Hochries in Germany which is an amazing place and we had 88 pilots super willing 45 went at backwards at 3g 43 went forwards at 4g as if they were in a spiral dive and they chucked their reserve parachutes and we've got a, reser- a video coming out of the conclusions from that soon but they are broadly similar the only bit that I would add to it from that experiment is if you are someone who flies very varied gear you are the kind of person who needs to practice and practice and practice when they're in the air locating their reserve handle we saw lots of people who had for example a front mount reserve go to their hip because presumably that's what they're used to Mm. or vice versa i would really love it if reserve parachutes locations were standardized on all harnesses yeah i think that'd be so um, we helpful. Saw that, this this comes back to that kind of just training your brain to do it over and over and over again because I, I i have been caught out by this in an actual situation throwing my reserve just totally forgetting that i had two because i'd, I'd been using my x-alps gear and then suddenly i was um, in, with my acro kit and you know it didn't occur to me till five seconds after the first faulty deployment that i had a second reserve yeah exactly and it's it's amazing how your options narrow when you're under stress so um i would love to see parachute handles all be put on the hip because when we did our study we saw that the majority of pilots that's the first place they look Mm. um i think because it's maybe it's where your pockets are or maybe you just orientate yourself by where the bones of your skeleton are but that's where people's hands went first. There are technical difficulties in doing that relating to the back protection and also to that that strop, like how you have something that's not too long that's with a hand still in your hip, but it is doable. And again, my plea to manufacturers, I would love to see reserve parachute handles all in the same place. And the other thing is if you're moving around because you're being thrown around the place, your hip tends to stay in roughly the same place compared to say your thighs mm. because they're they're going to wiggle around more. So I would really love it if all handles were put there. That's my plea. Yeah. And again, I mean, again, this comes down to training though. I, you know, like, like Theo, I mean, he, he's probably thrown his reserve more than anybody. And he, this is something he does every single time. He talks about it every single time he launches and he does the movement both sides. Does it, does it, does it, you know, it's just, it's something we have to make a habit of when it comes to safety. 
Because there are a yeah, lot a, of situations where you can't see it. Definitely. And people don't look. I mean, that was what we discovered wow, in really? our experiments. People just don't don't look. They What they do, and it's really, it's almost universal. They turn their head in the slight direction of where the reserve is, but they don't look at it. They don't look for the handle. They feel for the handle. And it's only when they can't find it, and we're talking seconds, that they will actually look and try and see it. So wow. that's one of the reasons why... Yeah, it's really striking because people like to look in the direction that they're going, especially when they're stressed out. Um, so people just don't look. And so what I get concerned about is there's a bit of a trend for these like really thin, like strimmer wire handles on some harnesses that are really flush with the harness. They were going to really flat against it. Yeah, um, like the XR7. I'd really like to see, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to see handles that are, prominent such that you can encircle your hand around it because people also it's really noticeable people like to get a grip on it even if they've got their thumb through it they still don't like to throw until they feel like they've got a grip on the handle mm. um obviously if you have the handles like super massive it's going to catch on stuff but there's a compromise and i think the compromise isn't a very thin hard to feel in gloves handle that's flash against the yeah, harness that was that was actually one of the reasons i mean i know we shouldn't be talking about manufacturers specifically but that's actually one of the reasons i stopped flying the xr7 i didn't feel confident that i could you know that's not where i need to shave a, a quarter of a percent of <laughs> aerodynamics you know that that's not where you i mean i don't know there's there's we we take we take our glides and performance a little too far sometimes, and I think that that's one of them. I totally agree, and that that thing's almost invisible and very hard to feel. I mean, I've had some great discussions with manufacturers. A lot of the brands have been really engaged with what we've been doing. So um, I definitely don't want to knock the manufacturers, and they have a lot of different priorities, and the ultimately they are companies people need to buy the harness and the things that people care about when they're buying the harness is by and large weight and aerodynamics and so the you know the reserve parachutes and tends to come quite far down people's shopping list mm. but as you say i don't think those are the places to get your extra point zero 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 one point of glide right yeah. is by the the drag of the handle Agreed. no i absolutely agree with you Agreed. um okay should we transition to your updated trauma kit yeah for sure so um in terms of the first aid stuff i really appreciated how many people listened to the last podcast that we did on that and also how many then um got in touch with me and uh, had some really good discussions um with lots of your listeners about some of the stuff that we talked about since uh since we did that because actually three years ago since we did that um i've kind of refined a bit what i think is important um so i've kind of distilled the things that people need to know about i think and this is dealing with major paragliding crashes not the little stuff i think people need to think about how to work together as a team they need to know how to manage the airway they need to know how to locate and control external bleeding they need to know how to bind somebody's pelvis and they need to know how to protect someone from the environment and i think those are the key topics and i cover all this in the podcast that we did before and um i've written sort of various things across country and i'll try and put stuff on on the website that i have that is ludicrously out of date um but those are the things that if you like what do i need to know to treat a paragliding accident those are some of the things you need to know 
And for anybody of any experience, there are always things you can do under each of those headings to make things better. And I will, so we'll, we'll put all that stuff that you just mentioned in the show notes. And I, like I, like I promised earlier in the show, I will be writing an article also in cross country about this search and rescue. We just, we, well, it actually is ongoing right now for, for Kiwi, but, and what we've learned from that. But I also want to implore all of you who are listening to, you know, when we get done with this show and after this, you know, this other information comes out, go do it. Like go make the kit and put it in your bag and make sure that your community, your club, whoever it is, uh, make sure everybody on your team that you could potentially have an incident with, we all know each other's resources. This is something that's so important. You don't want to be doing that on the fly. You know, when Ben broke his back in Nevada a couple of years ago, it was crushing to learn after he'd gotten in the helicopter and taken him away. Because when the ER guys showed up in Nevada, it, it's not legal for them to carry any painkillers. They don't carry any opiates. And, you know, so he, my best friend lied in the dirt uh, for three hours in excruciating pain, not from his back, but from a shoulder that was out that we could have done something about had we had painkillers. And we learned after he got helicoptered away that we had a really good first aid kit in the truck that was about 100 meters away. But that hadn't been, you know, that wasn't something we knew. We didn't know it was under the seat. And, uh, and my own you know, my own kit and my own gear was too far away. So, you know, these are little things that really help your victim. Uh, just knowing what resources, you know, you've got. Does everybody have their map share page? Does everybody have the downloads to their inReach for that particular area if you're not in cell? I mean, so the, there's a million things here. I'm not going to go into them right now. But, um, you know, if if we just share what we what resources we have before an incident it can really help the scene absolutely and i think we talked about this in the last podcast but communication is 90 percent of everything you do in the kind of rescue arena um communication and logistics so yeah knowing what you have knowing where you are knowing how to get help um knowing about your casualty if it's not someone you've met before all of these things matter yeah and it's you know kind of like the the reserve thing you know if you're trying to learn all that in an actual scene you're wow it's frustrating and it's way too late <laughs> you know it's just so <laughs> nice to know how to use that stuff in advance and that's you know that's what we can learn from people like you who are professionals and paramedics and stuff is that you know you don't go fight a fire without any training you got to do that stuff over and over and over again and make the mistakes so you don't make them in an actual situation i mean there's still always going to be mistakes but um we can make a lot less and have a lot less trauma and suffering for our victims if we're if we're on the ball definitely and i think you know knowing what's in your first aid kit and how to use it is pretty important because actually if you buy uh first aid kits kind of off the shelf then they're um they're often filled with sort of relatively pointless and paragliding irrelevant stuff um i do want to say like you know i i really recognize when i do all the safety stuff that that people go flying for fun you don't go flying in anticipation of having an accident usually when you go flying thank god there aren't accidents so I do sort of keep all of this in perspective, but there are certain basic things that you can do to keep you and your friends safe. And they're the things that you're talking about, Gav. They're being organized, knowing what you have, 
doing a bit of first aid training, carrying a basic kit. Though, again, the kit is the least important part. Like the most important part is your knowledge, your skills, and your ability to communicate with the people around you and the rescue services. And just flying as sensibly as you can, given everything that we've talked about, the environmental limits um, and your own personal ones. In terms of the specifics of what should be in a kit, um, I've kind of honed it down quite a lot. Um, The things that I think are important are pen and paper, some ability to write down what's happened to go with the casualty, um, pair of gloves, sterile gloves, a really decent bandage. So, And by that, I mean a trauma bandage or what's called a battlefield dressing. So that's something that's got a big, thick pad on it and a kind of elasticated um, bandage attached. And that's something that allows you to apply continuous direct pressure, which is the best way to stop external bleeding. And then that's actually the barest minimum, I would say. Then if you want to improve on things a little bit, you can start to add things like tape, a flexible splint, so like a a SAM-style splint. You can add some basic analgesia, so paracetamol, acetaminophen, as you guys would call it. Um, You can add things like triangular bandages to support shoulders. You can add things like hemostatic gauze, which are, you know, uh, kind of ways, again, ways of stopping bleeding you can add all these things but bleeding is what kills paraglider pilots knowing how to stop bleeding how to find bleeding stop bleeding and bind somebody's pelvis which is a way of stopping internal bleeding is the minimum of knowledge i would say great matt as always such a pleasure thank you so much for everything you're doing for the community and also just people in general at the hospital there and this trying time and thanks for sharing your knowledge it's just it's it's fantastic it's you know one of the i'm I'm loving what's happening in the community these days with just expanding our knowledge and you're a big piece of that uh chessboard so thanks very much thanks kevin thanks everyone and it goes without saying that everything that i do all of this research stuff is actually a massive team effort like there are huge numbers of people who've been involved in all of these studies not just the the participants in the studies but so many people from my home club from the university to which i'm attached you know it's a it's a massive massive team effort so um thank you to everybody who's involved and continues to be involved and um there's so much more to learn that's what i'm excited about there's so much more to learn and so much more we can do yeah and a shout out to cross country for for helping us out with with putting these studies together and and having our back and and publishing all this so thanks ed and the crew for for helping us out i mean i've almost deliberately not listed people because there are so many who have helped but yeah cross country have been absolutely stellar so and thank you gavin for all that you do for the community i I love these podcasts and um it's a real pleasure to be on it it's even more of a pleasure to listen to them well i can't wait for the next one thanks matt i appreciate it all right all right my friend thanks take care If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. 
And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I... For a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you Thank you.